Hey, Austin Oaks Church family, Pastor Brandon here coming to you in our second installment of Faith and Politics. You're going to notice that the delivery method of this message is different than last week's, primarily because um, I have a slew of notes and things all around me that I wanted to use and reference for this message. And quite frankly, that could be distracting for a video. And, and the other reason is, is I know that staring at one person um, for a long period of time could get real boring, even if the content is of interest to you. It's easy to check out. So we thought, hey, let's just do a podcast, see how that goes, because the reality is you can listen to this on your drive, on your commute home, to work, on a walk, on a run. Um, it's a little bit more accessible for you. So we're coming to you via podcast. So here we go. And it's going to be a little bit different for me, you know, trying to do this, talking to a mic in an empty room without even a camera. Now, man, this whole COVID world is so different. Um, trying to get used to so many things. My heart for this episode is I want to persuade you, Christian, I want to persuade you in this episode to understand and realize and to take up your role of influence in the political arena, in the public square, because we are not called to not be involved. We are called to be involved in all aspects and all spheres of life. Okay. And so the question I'm going to be trying to answer in the time that I have with you is how do we exert influence as the people of God in the political arena? What is the difference between the influence that the kingdom of God has as it exerts that influence and tries to shape a movement within the kingdom of men, in the kingdom of politics, in the kingdoms of all governance that, that's out there? And I don't know if you saw the vice president debate or not, but the last question of the debate really moved me. And I believe it's a revealing of our generation. I believe it's revealing of what is happening in our country, in our nation, as we are seeing a, a degradation of morality and incivility, and people don't know how to interact and converse anymore, where once we were able to diverse um, ha or have conversations with diverse opinions, right, and, and try to take our differing opinions and see where we can find the greatest good. Like that, that era seems to be past. And so an eighth grader submitted a question, basically dealing with the behaviors of our political leaders, asking them, how can you expect the American people to be civil when all we see from the media channels are our political leaders trying to rip each other apart? That is a valid question. And I believe that is a very, very important question. And it should be a question that makes the Christian lean in and it has our ears kind of perk up going, yeah. True. And I think it's important for us as the church to even start asking the questions like, have we like removed ourselves from the political arena because we just give gave up on it or become so cynical? Like I, I know some people I talk to have a very cynical view of voting. They're like, well, what's the point of voting? Doesn't seem to do anything and all that kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, sure, we don't understand all the ins and outs of maybe the electoral college and all that kind of stuff. But that does not negate the fact that we have a stewardship as brothers and sisters in Jesus to steward the gospel. And one of the ways to steward the gospel is to promote a government that reflects God's design for governance. And that deals with morality and it deals with behavior. So my, my hope and my plea with you is to convince you to understand that your call to follow Jesus 
is to be influential in every sector of society, and that includes the public square. That includes politics. That includes voting, but it doesn't just end there. Our heartbeat as believers, right, is that we should be loving our neighbors, not just those who love us back. Scripture is very clear on that. We are to love our neighbors. And one way of loving our neighbors is by getting involved in public life in such a way that benefits society and encourages human flourishing, right? That, that's love. It's not just rhetoric where we say like, yeah, we love people and we love our neighbor. It's, it's actually putting boots on the ground, flesh on the bones. This is how we love. And that means we need to contribute to public life. We need to contribute to the public arena that reflects God's loving design for all humanity. The Bible gives us insight into God's created plan and pattern for a thriving humanity. And since we know what that plan is, friends, listen, like we should be trying to compel and influence society to choose to move towards God's design. Now, don't hear this. I'm not saying that somehow we should enforce a religious morality on people who don't even believe in Jesus. That's not what we're saying. In fact, that's why I, I love America and I love our government because neither church or, or the state should be compelling either parties. Like it just shouldn't. We should actually be complementing each other. So here's the deal, friends. If we believe as a church that God is the creator of all things, that means God has created universal principles and patterns for how life works best. And the Bible informs that. The Bible instructs us on that. And that's why we need to be, as children of God, to be actively engaged in social life, in the public arena, specifically even in their arenas that deal with law and policy and voting and all that kind of stuff. And our heartbeat, our goal in our, in our engagement in politics is to really bring about an acceptance of what's going to be the most beneficial aspect for society. We believe in sin, church, right? We believe in sin, and that's why we have Jesus. He's our Savior. But sin tells us that there's not one person that truly wants to do what's in the best interest of others because we are inherently flawed. So our heartbeat, when we talk about this, is we've got to understand there's a role that the church institution has that God has set up, and there's also a role of government that comes directly from God as well. And they should be working in a complementary fashion. That doesn't mean we're going to have a Christian state govern run thing. We already have history to tell us and show us that it's wrong. In fact, even Jesus said that should not happen. You give to Caesar what is Caesar's. That's, that's Jesus saying there is a clear separation of church and state. But you give to God's what is God's. Like there's two spheres. These are two institutions that God has given for the greater good of humanity. So church, our heartbeat should really want the gospel to spread in society. We want the gospel to move and transform people's hearts and lives because when that happens, it's only when transformed people are then able to see and realize a transformed society. Our mandate as followers of Jesus is to love God 
with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength. And from that, we love our neighbor. And so listen, we cannot wait for the another generation or the next generation to step up to play and to do what we should be doing this very moment. Our love, friends, hear this. Our love ultimately is going to be the best endorsement for the gospel. Elections do not save nations. Elections do not transform societies the way that we see the, the gospel doing. So we should be completely involved. But here's the deal. We need to rely on the gospel to help us to love like the gospel calls us to love. Jesus showed us his love, that while we were his enemies, he loved us. He laid down his life for us. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He didn't come to be served, but he came to serve. And he left us an example of how to love and treat our neighbors and even our enemies. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation, coming as God's ambassadors in a foreign world, even though this is our state, I'm a citizen of heaven, but primarily as a believer, my citizenship is in heaven. And so therefore I have a kingdom of God mandate to influence the kingdom of earth, to look more and more and more like Jesus's kingdom. So our highest priority is to honor God faithfully. And how do we do that? How has God organized how the church and state complement each other to be a force for good? How has God arranged them to? But first, I need you to understand this. You have a role to play. You have influence as a follower of Jesus. And that means you cannot shrink back. That means your voice has to be heard. And it's not just on November 3rd. It's not just voting. This is a consistent ethic of love. It's a consistent, consistent ethic of influence. How we influence is completely different than how the world sees influence. For instance, if we look in John chapter 18, in John chapter 18, there's, there's this interesting scene when Jesus was in the garden with his disciples and uh, Judas, his, one of his disciples who decided to betray Jesus, brought the, the Jewish guards and all that come to arrest him and they come find Jesus in the garden and Peter, you know, he uh, is zealous and wants to protect Jesus and he takes out his sword and he lops off one of the guards' ears. You know, and Jesus in the very crazy scene, just he gets down, picks up the ear and puts the ear back on the soldier and looks at Peter and basically tells him, like, Peter, if you want to live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. And I start thinking about that for a moment, because I think a lot of times we as the church think of influence in the political arena different than we think about gospel influence. Like we feel like somehow in the political arena, we got to wield the sword. We got to be a little bit more forceful. We got to use the same me mechanisms that the world uses for influence. But I, and, and I'm telling you, sword stuff, sword flinging, sword swinging, sword wielding can be persuasive. It can be influential for the short term, but in the long term, it fails. And that is not the way the kingdom of God is meant to operate. So he tells them, it's like, listen, 
if you want to live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. Like in a lot of ways, you're going to reap what you sow. And so our behavioral ethic within politics needs to be congruent with the kingdom of God ethic of being gentle and being meek and being shrewd as snakes, you know, and being courageous, all those types of things. And he told Peter, Jesus told Peter, it's like, do you not think, like, do you not think I could just call on the father right here, right now, and we could have 12 legions of angels and we can deal with this whole mess right now? Do you not think that could happen? Right? And, and like, we got to remember that. Okay, what is of greater importance? It's the kingdom of God. That's of greater importance. These elections matter because these elections can create environments where the gospel can be really fruitful. But we're also concerned about justice and the greater good. Absolutely. But we don't go about influencing our political system by using the same means, okay? Not by using the same means, mechanisms, strategies per se, as the world. Now, that does not mean that Christians shouldn't get in politics and run for public office and, and campaign. I'm not saying that. I'm saying like our ethic of love and neighbor and humility and all of those ways are different. Jesus had a different mindset as to how the kingdom of God would be influential. He uses these illustrations like a mustard seed, right? Like the kingdom of God is a, is a mustard seed. It's a small, small seed. But once it gets planted and it takes root, that thing grows. It's almost this idea of something that's that's real subtle. It's sort of subversive. People don't even see it coming. But once the, the influence of the kingdom gets in, it starts to become pervasive and very persuasive. Same thing. It's like a little yeast. When it gets in the dough, it influences the whole dough. But the idea is yeast is little. So we don't go in wielding the sword and I'm not saying we need to take up arms, but a lot of times like we can use a political sword and cause the same mess. Cause we even see this like Pilate asking Jesus, you know, a little bit later, it's like, you know, we see this in uh, John 18, 33 Pilate's asking Jesus, are you the King of the Jews? So we're dealing with like Pilate's thinking in his mind, like one kingdom versus another kingdom. Are you the King of the Jews? Jesus said, well, my kingdom is not of this world. It doesn't operate by the same rules of this world. It's different than this world. But if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. We come as ambassadors, which means we come with a different skill set of how we go about influence. Very important. And I love just being reminded in Hebrews chapter 12, that we, 1228, Hebrews 1228, that we should be grateful that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So therefore, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So I want to encourage you, get involved. Understand that you got influence. Let's think about this. You are salt. You are light. You are the kingdom of God. The movement, the church is to be a mustard seed. It's like yeast. The kingdom of God is most effective when it's focused on transformed lives. 
people who are forever changed, who are moved from death to life, given a heart of flesh by God and from God because it's all his doing. And out of that transformation becomes this, this trickle down, right? You don't want to talk about trickle down economics. Like we, we're going to talk about a little trickle down kingdom of God stuff. Because when people are transformed through the power of Jesus Christ, that begins to transform families. That begins to transform relationships, neighborhoods, schools, businesses, societies, and yes, even government. We need to be involved. In fact, let me make another case. If you look throughout the story of the scriptures from Genesis all the way to Revelation, you see multiple stories, you see multiple teachings, and how God called his people or even used his people in certain circumstances and placed his people in certain circumstances to influence governments, to influence earthly kingdoms for the good of the kingdom of God. Great example, Daniel chapter 4. Daniel, is in, he's exiled. He was taken captive from Israel, and now he's in Babylon, and God has shown him favor. And now he's in a high courts, a high position as an official to King Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is um, acting sinful and probably, like, well, probably, we know. He's enacting even evil policies. His character is corrupt. Nebuchadnezzar's character is corrupt. What we see Daniel doing is a bold move. And it's the right move for the believer in how to influence. If we look at this in Daniel chapter 4, verse 27, it says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. And look at what, look at what he's going to say here. He's like, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. He's like, here's a great plan. Stop sinning. Stop living the way you're living. Put off some of these iniquities. Change some of your policies. Show mercy to those who are oppressed in your kingdom. Perhaps it's for your good too, Nebuchadnezzar. Perhaps maybe that will lengthen the days of your prosperity. Daniel's bold and it's crystal clear. You know, like if we were to even think about like maybe in today's terms, like how potentially we treat and engage in political arenas with people's character and policies that aren't looking so good, I think a lot of times we would say something along these lines. Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, I am a prophet, but I would not presume to impose my moral standards on your Babylonian kingdom. So ask your astronomers and ask your experts and soothsayers. They're going to guide you in your own ways. And then follow your own heart. It would not be my place to speak to you about right and wrong. Like that's kind of how we, we engage it. And we hope that maybe our roundabout efforts would do it. And I know you heard me say earlier about being subversive, but there's moments where as an ambassador in a foreign nation that is not your own home, you need to speak for good. You need to speak for justice and you need to call out evil where you see evil. But you do it in a way that is out of love. You do it out of a way that's showing uh, mercy and the wisdom of God. Break off your sins. Stop this. Show mercy to the oppressed. He just told the most powerful ruler how God of the entire universe wanted him to act as king. Like, don't miss that. Daniel just told the most powerful ruler in the universe how God, who created the universe, wanted him to act as king. 
that is boldness. But he did do it in a way that was offensive. That's important. Daniel is an Old Testament example of one who exercised significant influence in the public square, and one that was ruled by a king. We see this in other exiles, and especially, specifically in Jeremiah. We talked about this last week, how Jeremiah told those ex- exiles to seek the welfare of the city, Jeremiah 29.7, where he w- they've been sent into exile and pray to the Lord on his behalf. Pray to the Lord on the behalf of that city, the city that, that took you and captured you, burned your city down and destroyed all of that, took you as slaves, dragged you away, possibly separated your families. Now, while you're there, I want you to seek the welfare of that place and pray for that place. Because in its welfare, you're going to also find its welfare. Joseph. He was a high official after Pharaoh. Moses influenced Pharaoh. Nehemiah influenced uh, King Artaxerxes. You got Esther. They're over and over. We see prophets in Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. They all had a positive influence on the government. But let's look at the New Testament. John the Baptist. Man, he called out the sin of Herod Antipas, right? He he called him out saying, you have created and sinned against God. Like, you, you do this. And in fact, that's why Herod hated John so much, because he called it out. He's like, listen, it's not lawful for you to be with that girl, with that lady. It, it is against God's law. It is evil. He called it out. Yeah, did John pay the price for it? Yes. But was it the right thing for him to do? Yes. We got to do it in grace intact, 100%. 100%. What about the Apostle Paul in Acts? Paul was in prison in Caesarea. I'm looking at Acts 24, verse 24 through 25. When Paul was in prison in Caesarea, he stood trial before the Roman governor Felix. This is a big deal. And after some days, it says in Acts 24, Felix came with his wife. Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak all about faith in Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. And when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. This is fascinating because it's interesting that Luke would use the word that Felix was alarmed because Paul reasoned with him about a few things, righteousness self-control, and the coming judgment, okay? When this word reasoned is used in the Greek, it, it indicates a conversation. Like Paul wasn't preaching to them. He was conversing with them, maybe asking questions, and Felix was able to ask some questions, and maybe they even engaged in policy and decision-making that was there. Maybe Felix was just cut to the quick in that moment going, oh my goodness, I need to think these things through. Paul is a great example of how to have positive and, and, and constructive influence on a civil government. He took the opportunities. Now, I know you're not always going to have the same platforms as John the Baptist and Paul and, and even like Daniel and all that kind of stuff. But the reality is God will not let us go if we shrink back of our responsibility to steward kingdom values. 
it's our duty and it's our privilege to do that. We're supposed to have influence. And here's the thing, friends, you got to realize our world needs Jesus more. Our world needs to see the love of God. And the best way to see the love of God is by influencing others through the kingdom of God, the ethics of Jesus. Our American freedoms, there's a strong case that can be made that our greatest social benefits in America, but also even those governments that understand liberty, you can make an argument that those freedoms and these systems of governments come and they are influenced greatly by a Christian worldview. Christian worldview, straight out of scriptures, value individual liberty, values freedom of conscience. It values and expresses the dignity and equality of all people. It stresses the importance of the rule and law and insists in insistence that all people are equal before the law. It speaks into the corrupting power of authority and the need for healthy and appropriate checks and balances. These things were unheard of before the Christian worldview really began to take shape. So yes, government can't save people nor transform the human heart, but that doesn't get us, give us an excuse to not engage. We are exhorted to engage at every level in every sector of government or in every sector of culture, excuse me. So here's where we're going to get a little bit practical, okay? In order to know how to best bring about Jesus' type of influence into today's public arena, I'm going to push you to think about this. You need to have a biblical worldview. And when I say that, it's like we got to start with kind of like first order type of things in there. We got to remember as we come to our public arena and how we influence our civic government, we got to remember that God is over all. He's over all. Every knee will bow to him. He created all people, all nations, all things under heaven and all things under earth. They are his. And when we think about authority, it brings me back to John 19, when Jesus again was being tried before his crucifixion. Pilate asked him, like, okay, where are, you, where are you from? And Jesus didn't give him an answer. So Pilate asked him, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Here is an earthly ruler, a powerful earthly ruler in the Roman Empire who thinks that he has authority, that the ultimate authority comes from Rome because Rome bestowed authority upon him. And so therefore he has the authority to release Jesus and the authority to crucify Jesus. A biblical worldview would understand where true authority comes from. And we see this in verse 11 of chapter 19 in the gospel of John. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me unless it's been given to you above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has a greater sin, speaking of Judas and the Jewish people. But nonetheless, what Jesus made very, very clear is that God establishes governments and he gives governments temporary authority to rule for the greater good of all people, to execute justice, to punish evil, to, to complement and encourage good. 
This is, this is important. We see this all over scriptures. Isaiah 13 through 23, we see God holding unbelieving nations accountable for their actions. That means God is over all. Jeremiah 46 through 51, God is holding unbelieving nations accountable for their actions. Ezekiel chapter 25 through 32, God is holding unbelieving nations accountable for their actions. Amos, Amos chapter 1 and 2, Obadiah, Jonah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, these are all messages of God holding unbelieving nations accountable for their actions. Every government that is established on earth will have to hold an account or give an account to God because God is over all and God is the one who gives them temporary authority to rule over people for human flourishing, to eradicate evil. It's absolutely important. And sometimes like people say like, well, how would God, and I know this is a tension, like, like, you know, God, we say this, we believe this because it's in the Bible that God is the one who appoints leaders. And we don't always know the greater meta narrative of scripture of as to why God does what he does. But we see even Pharaoh in Moses and in Exodus, that Pharaoh was an evil guy. I mean, just brutal. But it's very clear. God said that he appointed Pharaoh. He put them in that position so that he could show, God could show his almighty um, right hand and power and glory over Pharaoh and Egypt, which was the greatest kingdom on earth at that time. We see God in Psalm 75. Look at this Psalm, Psalm 75. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. In other words, like people just don't like, come up with these leaders on their own. God is involved, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. That is Psalm 75 verses six through seven. And Daniel two, chapter 20, or Daniel chapter two, verse 21, it says that God is the one who removes kings and sets up kings. And verse 25 of chapter four says, the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. God is overall. So when we try to understand how we influence, we have to start with the notion that God is overall. Every government, every nation at some point is going to have to give an account for how it governed God's people. God then extends them temporary authority to exercise his design of government. That doesn't mean it's always executed right, obviously, because they're sinful. We're all sinful. But it doesn't mean that they are going to be without excuse. So out of that, since God is overall, that implies that God created all. And if God created all, as we see in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and even the, the, where sin enters humanity in chapter 3, we have to understand if God creates all, that means he's also created universal principles and precedents and standards that work best for humanity to flourish. So that means there's a right way to go about governing. There's a right way to go about living. All things are created by God and for God. And so the one true God that we see in scripture, he reveals himself to us. And out of that revelation, we get to understand his moral standards. It is clearly shown to us in the Bible, right? And so this is why I say to understand how to have great influence, we have to start with the scriptures. We have to have a biblical worldview. Our faith doesn't just come from like random experience. Our faith ultimately comes from hearing 
And hearing comes from the word of God. And from that, we start to make sense of our circumstances and how we make sense of the world around us. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 reminds us that all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. That informs us that God has given us clarity on how to best govern, how to best support governments, and how to understand authority, but also how to live under authority. We got the scriptures and the scriptures remind us that we fell short of the glory of God. We fell short of God's standards of morality. We sinned, and because of sin, the human heart is corrupted. We are inwardly predisposed to be selfish. Romans chapter 7 reminds us that there are a lot of good things that we want to do, but we end up doing the very thing that we don't want to do, and it's just kind of this this feeling of I am enslaved to certain passions and dispositions and thoughts and, and how do I deal with it? And Paul's like, listen, it's, that's the power of sin. The gospel story, the scriptural story, the meta narrative of God reminds us that God created all things in his image and it was very good, but sin entered and sin corrupted and sin brought a curse on the world and all things are decaying and broken and dead. So he sent his son, Jesus, to enact the greatest rescue story ever. We call that redemption. In the process of redemption, God is again given another organization or institution, for lack of better words, called the church. And the church is now the movement of God. It's the body of Christ building the kingdom of God, pleading with people to be reconciled with God. And so now we have three institutions that God created that we see in Scripture, understanding the worldview of how Scripture talks about these things at a, at a high level. God's overall, God created all. He set morality. There were standards. We sinned. We broke it. And now we live corrupt lives. And we need a Savior to change us, to redeem us, to move us from death to life so that we can start to see and understand again God's ways. And so now we have... Three institutions, generally speaking, that God has built up and set in place for human flourishing, to create environments for good. Because God doesn't just send the rain on the Christian. He sends the rain on all people. He's showing mercy to all people because he doesn't want any to go to hell. So we're here and governments are there to try to control and mitigate evil and create environments for human flourishing. So God instituted governments, he instituted the family, and he also instituted a church to be the vehicles of extending his goodness and his grace and his mercy in hopes that people would see Jesus. And so we have to understand that there is a distinction between government and church. As we already talked about that, I don't need to dig too deep into that. The church has its own unique mission and mandate, and the government has its own unique mission and mandate. Churches shouldn't govern things that are Caesar's, and Caesar shouldn't govern the things that are the churches or just religion in general in America. So here's what I want to do with the time remaining. So we understand, okay, what is the biblical picture, the biblical picture of the role of government let me just, I'm going to be sort of quick on this. 
one significant aspect to that answer is that God has given a limited mandate to public authorities, to earthly public authorities. And their mandate is not to bring about a new creation, transformed hearts and lives to transformed society. That is not the mandate of the government. That is the mandate of the church, of the gospel that's done and empowered through Jesus Christ. Instead, the, the mandate given to earthly authorities here it is, is to do justice in public life within his creation. So that's really one of the main heartbeats of why God gave us government. And this starts, we see God instituting governance in Genesis chapter 9, right? From the very beginning, we see this. Very important for us to understand. Okay? So governments are there to execute justice, Governments are there to defend the weak, to enforce justice, to um, rule on just standards of God's ways, of God's laws. This is how scriptures start to speak into this. Psalm 82, verses 2 through 4. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Not only are governments there to execute justice, enforcing justice, governments are also there to execute a swift and, and decisive punishment to deter crime. Okay, like that's important. If, if crime is not quickly um, punished, it actually encourages more crime. Crime begets crime. But government is there to punish those who break the law. In fact, we even see this in, in Ecclesiastes, okay? Ecclesiastes 8, chapter 8, verse 11. It says this, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, or speedily, sorry, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. So governments are there, given temporary limited authority by God to punish evil and to encourage good. That's another function and role of governments. We are told a lot in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. I'd encourage you just to read that. But what we see there in these seven or eight verses is that God's appointed the authorities who have governmental power. But they got to understand that authority is not from them, ultimately, and it is not from the nation, ultimately. That authority is a stewardship that is given temporarily by God to men to rule over God's creation, over God's people, okay? We, we have to remind ourselves of that. They are to give approval, uh, uh, approval or praise to those who do what is good, and they are to be a servant for the good of the people. Government, by God's design, is to serve for the good of the people, not for themselves. Government officials should ultimately be serving God, not themselves. Now, and I know there's some pushback right there in your minds, like, well, then that, does that mean that every person in the seat of government needs to be a Christian? That's not what I'm saying. When I say they're serving God, I'm, what I'm saying is they're upholding God's design for governance, okay? I, I want to make that clear. Because in Romans 13, it says that the authorities are ministers of God. Now, obviously, this was written in Rome. Are we saying that Caesar was a Christian? No. 
but God gave temporary authority to them. And so in that way, they're executing justice or ought to be executing justice and good for those who are good, et cetera, and thinking through how to reach the oppressed and showing mercy and all that kind of stuff. Like those are ministers of God. Government officials are doing good if they're carrying out their work in a good and pleasing way. Government should be serving the people, not the good of, of themselves. This is so, so important. Governments are also there to safeguard human liberty. Human liberty is a biblical principle. Freedom of conscience is a biblical principle. So they should be there. Governments should be there to safeguard human liberty because that's from God. They should be protecting human liberty. And then they should be deciding what types of laws and policies that should be put in effect to appropriately restrict certain liberties, okay? And here's what I mean by that. Let's just say there is no law on drinking and driving. So I have liberty because there's no law to drink and drive, but should government create a policy to restrict that liberty for the greater good of society? Yes, that's the idea. So if the role of government is that, what is the role of the church institution? The ultimate mandate of the church of Jesus Christ as an institution, as an organization, is to preach and proclaim the gospel, to make, develop, and send disciples. It is not to get into the how of certain biblical principles get litigated and enforced in the public arena. That's the church as institution. Salvation is a work of God, is not the work of the government. And so our job as the church, as institution, is to be about the gospel and discipleship. Focusing clearly and understanding clearly that the greatest good that any nation, any city, any world, any society can ultimately have is going to stem from gospel transformation. Transform lives lead to transformed relationships, and transformed relationships lead to transformed societies and governments. And that's why now the church organic or the church as people are to take their, their gospel influence and move as mustard seed and yeast and salt and light in every sector and sphere of society to influence for Jesus out of love for God and out of love for neighbor. So God instituted governments. That is part of a biblical worldview. And there are clear mandates and instructions that God has, is going to judge these nations and these rulers for. He's given them temporary authority because humanity is inherently evil. We're inherently selfish. And so we need the government to keep kind of that evil in check while the gospel does its work to transform lives. So disciples, if you're a follower of Jesus, you cannot shrink back from your responsibility to influence the public arena. That means you should vote. You should vote. You should be informed. But you can't bring an appropriate vote, a wise and discerning vote, unless you have a biblical worldview to understand 
who's overall, who's in control overall, and what kind of parties are influencing or supporting the institution of government as God has designed, and how each party is, is upholding biblical values and principles in the litigation, how they will go about enforcing those laws. This is ultimately a discipleship issue. Friends, you got to understand this. This is a discipleship issue. Because here's the deal. If we as believers don't get involved and we don't use the responsibility entrusted to us from Jesus as salt and light, as ambassadors, if we don't do that, if we don't influence morality in this world, in our nation, there's a vacuum. And something always fills that vacuum. And here's some realities. Governments influence morality. Governments influence morality. It starts to build and thread the needle in constructing the moral tapestry of our nation. The Bible tells us this. Psalm 94 verse 20 starts talking about how wicked rulers... They frame injustice by statutes, by laws, by policy. They pass laws to enable wrongdoing. And Isaiah gives a warning to that, saying, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, evil decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression. Sometimes governments even pass laws that authorize horrible, evil deeds. We see that even in the Bible in Esther. And that's why Paul encouraged Christians in the church at Ephesus through Timothy and 1 Timothy 2.2 to pray for all the kings and all the people who are in high positions in, in the public arena. Pray for them so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So this, there's an implication here that tells us that good rulers can influence a nation towards good conduct or good morality, while evil rulers can encourage and promote evil conduct and evil morality. If Christians don't use the influence that we have through Jesus Christ, don't be upset with what fills that vacuum because that means we just left that vacuum void. We have to be involved. And the other reason is this. Not only do governance influence morality. Laws teach morality, right? Think about that. Laws have a teaching function. We learn what is moral and immoral, quote unquote, primarily through law. If it's legal to do this, then people will start to think, well, then that must be moral. And if it's illegal to do this, then people might start thinking, well, that must mean it's immoral. So that's why it's important for Christians to get involved and to express their voice and to dialogue and to rub shoulders with people to talk about biblical principles and values. Because if we believe God is overall and God created all, that means that God's way is best. That means God has a design that's best for government, for the people, and God's design for people to see Jesus and grace and redemption through the church. God has the best way and best method to go on about doing that. And that means we have to bring our kingdom influence into every sector. Now, that leads me to another one that's absolutely important. It goes all the way back to the eighth grade question. Character. Character examples. 
when you think about that eighth grader's question about how do you expect us to get along and behave as Americans when we see our political leaders ripping each other apart, where do they get this idea? Like, where do they take their examples from? I mean, let's be honest. Middle schoolers aren't going to understand the intricacies of policies. They're not going to understand the intricacies of systems of justice and injustice. But they will clearly understand human behavior. If they see our leaders acting a certain way and it's seen as acceptable or they think that maybe I need to act in kind to push back against it, well, that produces a culture. Character is important. And, and Christians, we, we need to stand on that. Daniel called out Nebuchadnezzar's character. John the Baptist called out Herod's character. Paul called out character. We shouldn't excuse character for right policies one way or the other, one party or the other. It, it's irrelevant. We don't, if we see things that aren't right, we, we need to go, that's just not right. That's just not okay. It's a discipleship if, issue. If we leave the vacuum empty, if we don't fill it, it will be filled with something. Very important. Very, very important. So what I want to get into in the next two sessions is get a little bit deeper into policy and how to think about certain things and what does the scripture say about certain things. And I know it's going to be um, walking a thin line. I understand that. But I, I hope you understand that I'm trying to base all of my conversation from the scriptures. I'm trying my hardest to not bring in any of my opinion. So what I wanted to do as we end here is go, okay, well, then how does this help me think right now, the last two episodes, think about how to vote? So here's just some things I want to encourage you to think about when you look at the candidates. Do they, I'm not saying do they believe in a biblical worldview, but do their overall policies and decisions and behaviors represent a biblical worldview? Which one in their policies that we see possibly enacted in the next four years would best demonstrate love of the neighbor, loving the oppressed, the widowless, the father, the, the widowed, the fatherless, the orphan? Which, which candidate, candidates uphold government roles and duties that reflect God's design for government? Which candidate upholds human liberties? with necessary restrictions to limit those liberties, as we talked about, for the greater good. Which leaders, candidates, would you say are more for the people than their own party, more for the people than their own selves? You need to, you need to weigh and reflect on character. Every candidate, look at their character, look at the fruits. I know it's, it's, it's very tempting just to go, well, Look past the candidate and look at the party, but candidates are endorsed by the parties and ultimately the parties and the candidate enact and build and enable certain policies. So character can't be overlooked because they're also examples for our younger generations. That is not a statement as to these candidates. You, you need to decide that. You need to look at both candidates or every candidate, senator, all of it. Which biblical principles 
let, let me rephrase this. How these candidates will enact and force certain biblical principles, the how, very important. These are simple questions just to be asking as we look at a biblical worldview. And we can do that right now. You know, but I know there's some questions that people have been asking me, and, and I think they're, they're kind of sad. Okay, some of these questions are very sad. I've been asked questions of saying, can I be a Christian? I believe in pro-life, and I think I might vote Democrat. Can I still be a Christian? I've, I've been asked that question. I've been asked questions of, Brandon, how can people say they're a Christian and be a Republican? And the same question on the other side, Brandon, how can people say they're a Christian and a Democrat? And I, and I think that is very um, descriptive of how we have put aside a biblical worldview when it comes to politics. Because the reality is, a political party has nothing to do with your salvation. That would be works, my friends. And we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace and grace alone. We're saved when we place our faith and trust in King Jesus, not in a political party. So yeah, you can be a Christian and be on both sides. 100% you can. And we could have some strong opinions about that, which is okay. Jesus had disciples who had strong opinions on both sides. But here's what I want to say. And I said it earlier, and this is how we're going to end. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. No matter what. No matter who's in, who's in office, they are getting temporary authority by God to steward. And whoever wins will be held accountable someday because God is overall. Elections are never going to ever be enough to save and transform a nation. Only Jesus, only the gospel. And that's why we need to realize as believers, we have significant influence to wield in the public arena. But we don't do it by the sword. We do it and play by the rules of the kingdom that is not of this world. If you have any questions or thoughts or comments, uh, we'd love to hear them. And also, if you're wondering where I'm getting my resources from, I have a um, plethora of resources that I've been using. And so um, know that I love you. I'm praying for you. And let's honor and reflect Jesus so well in this election. And if you're going to vote early, here's my advice to you. Take Jesus with you to the voting booth and pray and discern and land on what the Lord puts on your heart. Many blessings.